So 1 Peter 1.13, and the title is Set Your Hope. So let's begin, because today is kind of a transition from the first 12 verses into something different. So let's kind of set, our, if we can, our context here. So in 1 Peter, the verse begins with the word, therefore. And we touched on this a little bit last week. And in the New Testament, therefore often introduces commands especially following a period where the author has been talking about doctrine. Okay, so the author will go in and talk a lot about doctrine, and then he'll say, he'll say, therefore. Now, when we mention the word doctrine, a lot of people say, oh, no, here we go, right? Doctrine's just, it's boring, I don't really, it's tired, you know, I don't really want to do that. Give me, give me a sermon or a lesson that's uh, fast, that's exciting, that's inspiring, give me that, right? Uh, that's Joel Osteen, right? You don't want doctrine, you want a short sermon, fast, inspiring, cool, that's him. You stay away from the doctrine. But the problem is, and, and by the way, that's what the vast majority of America wants, quick, inspiring, and stay away from the, the doctrine. The problem is, is that in the New Testament, doctrine and practice, or doctrine and obedience are, are, are intertwined. They are linked together. Uh, the, the commands and principles of Christian living always begin with a, a therefore. Now, we touched on this last week. Why would that be? Well, it's because doctrine defines the standards for how we are to live. It, it defines the means of our conduct, how we're going to do it. It defines the outcome of our conduct, the basis for our conduct, and the motivation for our, our conduct. Let, let, or let's look at it a different way. Maybe this is a better, better way to put it. I wrote this down. Friends don't let friends or don't ask friends to obey without a reason. In, in John 15, Jesus said this, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. He said it another way. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, if you're really my friends, you'll obey me. But then he says this, which I think is awesome. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. You see, if I'm a master and I have a servant, I say go clean the bedroom. I don't got to tell you why. Just do it. If I say lay out an extra place setting, just do it. I don't have to explain myself. It's 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 an employer-employee or master-servant. Jesus said, that's not the way it is with you and me. I have called you friends. For all the things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. See, what the New Testament does, it doesn't just say obey and give us no reason. It lays out the reasons. It lays out the doctrine. It lays out, that's what Peter's been doing, by the way, for the first 12 verses. You've got this great salvation, this inheritance, this unbelievable thing. That's, been, that's waiting on you, therefore. So he goes out of his way as a messenger of Jesus to tell us why he's going to ask us to do the things that he's going to do. Remember, verse 3, he said, since God's great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Verse 4, since we have been born again to obtain an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. Verse 5, since we are being protected for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, since we presently suffer various trials in order that our uh, faith 
can be proven real. And it'll, it'll uh, result in praise and glory at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, since we are obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. In verse 10, last week we saw our salvation is so incredible that the Old Testament prophets were consumed with it and angels are in awe of it. And he says, since all that is true, therefore, therefore. I've, so he's given us the basis for what now. Let me tell you, this week and next week, he's going to call us to some great things. But don't forget the why, because what a great salvation we have. So he's laid out this great salvation, the splendor and security of this inheritance that's waiting on us. Now he says you need to think and conduct your in a way that's worthy of that call, that's worthy of that salvation. So let's read verse 13. Now this morning I'm going to do something a little different that I don't normally do. I normally use the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, because I, I think it's an excellent version. And I'll show you why it's a good version in a little bit. Today I'm going to go back to the King James or the New King James, because Sometimes the old has something to teach us, and you're going to see that today. So let's read it in the New King James. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and that's the verse. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is when you read that, and, and I'm sorry to do this, but I have to, is we need to talk a little bit about Greek. Okay, when you first read that verse, it seems like there are three commands. Peter's saying, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope. Okay, now it, it looks like there's just three commands, and they look like they're all equally important, <clears throat> but that's not the case. One of those commands is more important than the other two. In fact, two of them are a means to an end of the, of the third one, okay? Now, again, I, I don't normally do this, but, I, but you're going to see today this is important. Okay, so I need to talk a little bit about the Greek language. The Greek language has different ways to formulate verbs. Okay? It, it can use what's called an imperative, and it can use what's called a participle. Right? An imperative and a participle. And, and when, when multiple commands are given, it's important, because what happens, anything that's a participle is subordinate to the imperative. In other words, the imperative is more important. The participles are done in, uh, in, in conjunction with... Everybody with me? So the imperative is important. Participles, they're supporting the imperative. Think about... I'll give you an example. Think about this sentence in English. If you happen to smell smoke, gather your belongings, call 911, and run. Right? Now, one of those is an imperative. Which one is it? Run. Run. That's more important than the other two, right? Listen, if you gather your belongings and call 911 and just sit there, you're going to die. Right? Or, more importantly, run. If you got time to gather your belongings, if you got time to do... So even in English, we have ways that when I give you multiple verbs or multiple commands, I can tell you which one's more important, right? That's exactly what the Greek is doing. One of those is more important. Here's an example from the New Testament. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus said, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Four commands. 
One of those commands is an imperative. Three of them are participles that support the imperative. Which one do you think is the imperative that's more important? Make disciples. <clears throat> Listen, you can go, you can teach and baptize, and if they don't become disciples, what's the point? You just, you just got a bunch of people wet. They're not believers, right? What's more important is to make disciples. Then you baptize them, then you teach them. But the imperative is make disciples. And that's exactly, when you go look at the Greek, that's exactly how it is. Make disciples is the imperative. Go, teach, baptize are all in support of that. Everybody with me? Okay? This is the exact same situation we find in 1 Peter 1.13. There are three commands there. One is an imperative, and two of them are participles. One is important, more important. They're all important, but one is more important than the other two. So if we read it like this, it should really read more like this. Having girded your mind, that's a participle, and being sober, that's a participle, now fix your hope on the grace that's coming. That's the imperative. Okay? Now, you may say, why is that important? Why do you go out of your way to tell me all that? Because I want you to understand, when it says, gird up the loins of your mind, and being sober, they are a means to an end. If you really want to set your hope... See, I think there's Christians all over the place, and they wonder, man, why can't I focus? Why do I get pulled aside into money and jobs and life and drama? Why can't I just focus? I'll tell you why you can't focus, because you haven't done the other two. You haven't prepared your mind. You haven't, you haven't, you're not thinking soberly. See, those two things are a means to an end of setting your hope. Now, with that in mind, let's look at all three commands. So here's the first one, which is a supporting command. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. That's the old King James. Okay, let's read it again. Therefore... Gird up the loins of your mind. That's the first command. Now, I see some young people in here. I see some maybe some newer Christians. If you ever opened that up and read it, you'd be like, what in the world are they even talking about? What is loins, first of all? I don't even know what that. I never even heard of that. Uh, you know, I, I, they don't know what's going on, right? And, and that's why the ESV changes it. And you're going to see the ESV does an excellent job of, 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 of rendering that or translating that. But there's a reason I'm going to use the King James. And so sometimes it helps us as modern 21st century Christians. Remember, that was written 2,000 years ago. Let's go back. What if you went back to, to Palestine? What if you went back to biblical times? What if you went back to ancient Israel? What did they mean by that? Gird up the loins of your mind. Sometimes you have to walk in their shoes. Sometimes you have to go back and, and, and see what they're talking about. So let's go back. So back in Jewish and Roman times when this was written, the, the, the garment that people wore was called a tunic. Okay? And, and both men and women wore them. They didn't have pants and things like that. And the tunic was basically a long robe. It, it was essentially like a, a dress. I put a couple of pictures up here. So on the left might be a Roman uh, wearing a tunic. On the right may be a typical uh, Jewish man wearing uh, a tunic, 
So it's kind of like a dress. They could be short sleeve or long sleeve. They could go below the knee. They could go all the way down to the floor. Men and women wore them. Men tend to wear, would wear dark colors and light colors. Uh, women's would be blues and purples and reds and more, more colorful, right? But, but eventually, they wore the exact same type of garment. Now, normally, when they had this tunic, they would put a belt on. And a belt could be made of leather, for example, like a soldier, or it could be a, uh, just made of cloth, but that would cinch it, to your, uh, cinch it to your waist. And for, like, for example, soldiers, you didn't have pockets, so that's where you'd store your money. It's where you'd store your, uh, your, if you had any weapons, like your sword, if you had any tools, if you were working out in the field or working construction, you would put those things in your belt. So you got this long dress-like thing that you're, you're wearing. Here's the deal. When men needed to work, or they needed to run, or they needed to fight, that thing would get in the way of their legs, okay? So what they would do is they would reach down, and they would grab the hem, and they would pull it up above their knees, and they would tuck it into their belt, okay? That would free up their knees. Everybody with me? That was known as girding up your loins. That's, that's all it means. Tuck in your dress. Tuck in your tunic. Tuck in your robe so that you are prepared. For example, 1 Kings 18.46. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's all he's saying. That he reached down, he pulled up his tunic, he tucked it into his belt, and he took off. He ran. Because how do you run in a drift? You know, I can't move, right? So he girds, up his, he girds up his loins. Now, what happened over time, this phrase, gird up your loins, became a metaphor for preparation. Okay? And by the way, you see it in the Bible this way. We just came out of a study of Job. Job 38.3 in the King James. This is God speaking to Job, and he says, Job, gird up your loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and you answer me. See, God's not saying, Job, pull up your tunic. Everybody with me? What God is saying is get yourself ready. Prepare yourself to talk back, to speak to me. By the way, the New King James, if you go read it, the New King James says, now prepare yourself like a man. That's because it's being used as a metaphor. Everybody with me? It's not, he's not literally saying tuck up your dress. He's saying prepare yourself. By the way, we have a very similar metaphor we use in America. We say it's time to roll up our sleeves. Right? Doesn't mean you literally have to roll up your sleeves. It means it's time to get to work. Over time, roll up your sleeves became a metaphor for it's, it's, time, to, it's time to get ready. It's time to do some hard work. So the biblical expression, gird up your loins, signifies that someone is getting ready. They're preparing themselves for service. Now, if you've got the ESV, this is an excellent translation. Because the ESV is for English-speaking people, for modern people. And, and it, they know when you see gird up your loins, they're not going to have a, a, a clue what they're talking about. So this is the translation of the ESV. Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Everybody see that? Now that is an excellent translation. That's exactly what Peter's saying. When he says gird up the loins of your mind, he's saying get your mind ready. Get your mind ready. Prepare your mind for action action. So, here's the question. How do we do that? How, what does he mean by that? How do we prepare 
our minds for action. Well, now this is where the original language is, is helpful. This is why I started out in the King James. So let's go back to the metaphor and let's think this thing through. The, the metaphor is gird up the loins of your mind. What Peter is saying, again, the whole idea of girding up your loins is tuck in your tunic so you're ready to work, so you're ready to run, so you're ready to go. Okay, so what does he mean by gird up the loins of your mind? Peter's saying you need to get your mind ready to serve God unhindered. In other words, turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. You know, when somebody gets out and run a race, they don't run a race in a dress. They don't run a race in, in, in coveralls. They, they free them. They want their legs as free as they can possibly be. Peter says, do that in your mind. Get it ready. If there's anything in your mind that's hindering you from serving God, put it off. Get rid of it. Get rid of any hindrances mentally that would affect right thinking about God. Now listen, we can do this in two ways. The first one is absolutely should be obvious. You need to put off things that are hindering you. Put off things that are hindering you. Take an inventory of what you are allowing into your mind. If there's anything you're allowing into your mind that would hinder you from serving God, get rid of it. Tuck it gird it up. Tuck it in. Get rid of it. Move it out of the, move it out of the way. Listen, Hebrews 12.1 says the same thing. Therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race. Is there anything holding you back? Get rid of it. Put it aside. Get it off. The writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Watch what you are allowing into your mind. It ain't rocket science. Watch what books you read. Watch the websites that you visit. Watch the movies that, that you allow into your mind. There are some things, and, and, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, there are some things that we would never allow out on, if we were out in the world, we would never participate in, and we'll let that thing come right into our home, right into that TV, and, and right into our, we, we do it all the time. We would never put up with that outside, and then we turn on that TV and we just let it in. Watch the sermons you listen to. Make sure the people you're listening to are Bible-believing, mature Christian men and women. Be careful. By the way, be careful the people you converse with. Are the people you talking to, are they encouraging you, exhorting you, admonishing you in the Lord? Or are they gossiping? What are they doing? I mean, that, this is what Peter's saying. It, it, it's not rocket science. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get rid of anything that would hinder you from serving God. Listen, holiness begins in your thought life. In chapter 14, listen to me. I'm sorry, in verse 14, Peter's going to call you to holiness. Be ye holy even as I am holy. He's getting you ready for 14. He's getting you ready. You see, holiness starts in your thought life. What you think determines how you live. One of the most practical things I can ever tell anyone on how to live the Christian life is deal with your thought life first. Lord, it took me a little, many, many years to figure that out. I'd be laying in bed and a thought would come to me and I'd just let my mind run. Just let it run. 
That, that's not what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and I take every thought captive to Christ. When that thought comes in there, it's not supposed to be there, I take it captive now. No, 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 we're not going down that road. We're not, we're not going there. Take it captive. Stop it. Do whatever you got to do, but you take that thought captive to Christ. Listen, you can fool everybody else. You can look right, dress right, act right, speak right, but God knows what's in your heart and in your mind. If you're faking it, if you're faking it, if you're not cultivating a holy thought life, let me warn you, one day that's going to come out in your actions. It's just a matter of time. You can't hide the truth. If you're thinking things and, and cultivating things in your mind, everybody might say, boy, he's a great guy. She's a great woman of God. But let me tell you, one day it's going to come out in your actions because your thought life is really who you are. It's coming. Take those thoughts captive. To get rid of them, Peter says. Get your mind ready. Listen, we need to guard what enters our mind as carefully as we guard what we eat. If, I, if we were walking down the street and there was a, a cheeseburger in the gutter, how many of us would reach over and pick that up? I, I Hopefully not many. Right? I mean, who's going to eat out of a gutter? But how many Christians daily feed their mind on garbage? Garbage. Just let it in. Just anything that comes in. Listen, if you feed on garbage and you don't feed on God's Word, there is no way you'll ever be a holy man or a holy woman. No way. Just can't do it. It's impossible. So this is what Peter is saying. Peter's going to get to a final command, but he's saying the first thing you need to do is watch what comes into your mind. By the way, that's not enough. There's a second thing you need to do, and Peter, Peter is focusing on the hindrances. Get rid of the things that hinder. But not only do you need to put off what is harmful, you need to put on what is helpful. Paul speaks directly to that in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6.14 says this, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with what? Truth. What is he saying? Prepare yourself with the word of God. That's what he's saying. Get rid of the garbage. Get rid of the things that hinder you. Get rid of the things that wouldn't allow you to think rightly about God. And what, you, what do you replace it with? Truth. 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 Again, it's not, this isn't rocket science. This is simple stuff. You should run every day with Scripture. You should work with Scripture. You should live with Scripture. You see, gird up the loins of your mind is telling us we need to engage our mind, not just get rid of the things that hinder us, but put in Scripture. And by the way, this is a... Remember what I said about the participles and the imperatives? It's a means to setting our hope. Listen to Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction, that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Get rid of the garbage, fill your mind with Scripture, and what's, what's, what's the result of that? Hope. Hope. Steadfast hope. I mean, living hope. See, this is what it means to be a Christian soldier. We talk about that sometimes. The first thing as a soldier, if you're going into battle, is you secure anything that could trip you up. You get rid of anything that could trip you up, right? I mean, the next, last, can you imagine a soldier runs into battle and he trips over his, his tunic and falls down? Well, you're dead, you know. He, he never even got to fight. So the first thing you have to be ready to do is you've got to be prepared to fight. 
You've got to have the weapons. You've got to have the hindrances out of the way. Anything that would cause you to stumble. The second thing you do is you put on the armor. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians. See, it's this attitude of preparedness. I'm not going to let anything stop me from serving my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to let anything stop me from crossing that finish line. I, I was thinking, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about a fire station. And, and I, know, I know Scott's a, 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 is a retired fireman. And I, and I think we've all seen enough. If you go into a fire station, everything's in order, right? Can you imagine a fire call coming? And there's a fire, and they run out there, and the hoses are all spread out. And the, where's my helmet? Where, where, where's my axe? It, that's not the way it works, is it? Everything is in place. Everything is prepared. Everything is ready. That's what Peter's saying. By the way, Jesus said the same thing, Luke 12, 35 to 40. Stay dressed for action. He liter the, the, the literally means let your loins stay girded. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And that's what Jesus said. Stay ready. Have your loins girded. Be ready. Be prepared. Exactly what Peter's saying. If there's anything in your life, Christian, that's hindering you, hindering you from serving God, thinking about God in the right way, you need, to, you need to gird it up. You need to unhinder yourself and get rid of it. The second one, be sober. Be sober. Look at the, the, the New King James. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Now, obviously, soberness has two meanings. The, 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 the literal meaning is don't be drunk. Don't let alcohol cloud your mind. Don't let it, alcohol numb the reality of things. That's the first literal meaning. Metaphorically, it also has another meaning, is keep your mind clear, right? Be clear-minded. Uh, think straight. Don't, don't let things cloud your mind. Now, Peter is obviously not using the literal here. He's not saying don't get drunk. He's, he's concerned with much more important things than that. He's using this metaphorically. He's saying keep a clear head. Get rid of the things that hinder you and keep a clear head. Think straight. Now, what does he mean by that? I want, I want to help you out here. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. Now, watch what, what he says. The time is going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't, they don't want to hear truth anymore. But wanting to have their ears tickled, now watch this, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will go looking for teachers who teach what they want to do. I, I want to be a homosexual, I'll find a teacher that tells me it's okay. I want to divorce my husband, I'll find a teacher that tells me that's okay. I, 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 want to, I want to get drunk on Friday nights, I'll find a teacher that tells me that's okay. That's exactly what it's saying. They find teachers who tell them what they want to do is okay. And they turn their ears away from the truth, and they turn aside to miss. Now, I said all that. Now, watch what Paul says. But you, Timothy, don't be like that. Be sober. You see what he says? Don't be like them. Be sober in all things. Be clear thinking. Be right thinking. Don't let things, don't turn aside to those kind of things. You see what Paul's doing? What he's saying here. He's contrasting being sober-minded with the clouded, muddled thinking of people who reject sound doctrine 
and go looking for teachers who will teach them and justify an, an unrighteous lifestyle. That's what he's saying. So he's contrasting sober-minded people don't do that. Sober-minded don't do that. So sober-minded people don't go through life obeying only the scriptures that fit their worldview. So sober-minded people don't chase the latest cultural fad. Sober-minded people go here and here only. They don't, they don't get pulled aside into all these other things. He's talking about being self-disciplined in your mind, self-disciplined spiritually. Now, when you put these two together, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, it's easy to see what, what Peter is saying here. He's dealing with two ways that we are to prepare ourselves. Girding one's loins is, is unhindering yourself from anything, from any mental hindrance that would cause you to think wrongly about God or that would, 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 would slip us up or trip us up in our service to God. Keeping sober is the disciplined mental condition which enables one to act rightly and with a clear head. Okay? Now remember, those two are participles. They're not imperative. They're great, aren't they? Those are great commands, but they're not the imperative. They are given as a means to an end they're given in support of the main thing. And the main thing, surprisingly, by the way, is set your hope. Set your hope. That's the main thing. Let's read that verse. I'll read it from the ESV. 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, having done those things, now set your hope fully. Some translations say completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ or the revealing of Jesus Christ or the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by set your hope? Well, I believe he means we are to set our affections and our desires on heavenly things, mainly grace, as opposed to earthly things. I asked you the question last week, what is it that brings you joy? If you can really answer honestly, what is that one thing that just brings you joy? Is it an earthly thing? It can be a good thing. It can be family. It can be your marriage. It can be helping others. Those are all good things, by the way. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But our, our, our hope, our, our focus should be on eternal things. It should be on heaven. It should be on our salvation. Listen, Paul says it a different way in Colossians. He said this, Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. In the King James, it says, set your affections. I like that. Set, what do you love? What do you really love? What, what drives you? What are you passionate about? That's what he's asking. That's what Peter's saying. Set your passions. Set your hopes, your affections, your desires... Set it on grace. See, I, I said before, I think there are so many people that would love to do that. But they're just not passionate about the things of God. They're not passionate. That's not consuming them. They're not in awe of it. Why? Because they're filling their mind with a whole lot of hindrances. They're, they're letting things into their mind that literally compete with their affections for God. Yes? Peter says, get rid of those. 
Get rid of those. Think clearly. Fill your mind with truth. Let that, and, and when you do that, you do those two things, guess what comes of that? Now you're able to set your passions, your, your, your affections, your hope on the grace of God. So that's what he's saying. Now that you've gotten rid of the hindrances in your mind, now that you've filled your mind with truth and you can think clearly, set your hope fully on grace. Now, here's the question I had. Why does he say grace? Why does he say set your hope on grace? Why didn't he say set your hope on your salvation? Set your hope on the kingdom of God. Set your hope on eternal things. Set your hope on blessings. Set your hope on glory. Set your hope. He could have said all those and he'd have been good. But let me tell you, all those things are a result of grace. You know that? All those things. There's grace and all those things come as a result of grace. Every single thing that I just mentioned all comes as a result of God's grace. None of those benefits are earned. We don't deserve any of them. They're all owing to God's grace. Listen, for a Christian, I can't imagine a word in the English language that should be sweeter to us than grace. 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 When we slip and fall and mess up, it's grace. When we think, man, I just, I just don't know if I can keep grace. I don't know if I can get through this trial, this, this tribulation, this test. Grace. Grace. There's some of you in this room, as I look around, I know you've been through some tests, and, and when you were in the middle of it, you thought, I, I can't bear it. I can't, I can't do it. But you did, and that was grace. God's grace. That's what Peter said. Just, just, just remember grace. It's not about you earning it, not about you deserving it, not about you having to obey all the rules. We're going to mess up every single day. Set your hope, your affections on grace. And just think about grace. Let me tell you, Jesus is coming back and he's bringing grace. He's bringing grace. I, as I was writing that down, I, I thought about a train. I, I read somewhere, somebody said something, grace is bearing down on me. And I thought, man, I like that. It's like a train that's coming and I can see the light. It ain't here yet, but it ain't far. It's bearing down, it's coming, and it's bringing grace. Focus on it. Hope in it. Let me tell you, one final thought on grace. Romans eleven six 6 says this, and we all know this scripture. If it's by grace, it's not on works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. People all over this country, all over this world, are involved in religions that are trying to earn their way to heaven. And they are all, every single one of them are going to miss it. Because God says, that's not the way you come to me. It is grace. Undeserved, unmerited, no way you can earn it. And if you try to earn it, you step outside of grace. Focus on grace. Your life is built on grace. So we understand that, right? That grace is unmerited, unearned, undeserved. But let me tell you, it would be wrong to say that grace doesn't demand a response from me and you. Grace demands a response. Peter says that response is hope. Set your hope on that grace. Let, let your whole soul... You know, as I, I don't know, is anybody say, can anybody tell I've been fired up the last few weeks? Anybody? Well, how can you not when you study that salva great salvation? That's the whole point. He keeps saying, look at your salvation, how awesome it is, how great it is. How can you not get fired up? Now set your hope on grace. Live your life for that grace. Make that your obsession, your passion. Don't, don't, listen, 
Let me tell you, can, can I just tell you, don't go halfway in. How many people are living, trying to live halfway in grace and halfway in the world? Halfway serving God and halfway doing... Man, what a, what a, that life is terrible. You, you are missing so much. Go in. Sell out. What did Peter said? Don't set, set your hope partially on grace. Just not, not mostly on grace. Completely on grace. Sell out. Get rid of those things. Don't, don't, listen, there, there's nothing wrong with your, your there's nothing wrong with uh, your hobbies. There's nothing wrong with fishing and, and hunting. There's nothing wrong with getting together with family. and hanging. I'm not saying you've got to read the Bible 24 hours a day and, and walk around with your hands up all the time. And, 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 I mean, I'm nobody's saying that. But what I'm saying, in here and in here, I'm sold out. I'm sold out. Nothing, nothing takes the place of grace. Nothing takes the place of that inheritance and that salvation that's waiting on me. I will not let anything... Stop me. That's what Peter's trying to, he's trying to, he's trying to get us going. Because next week, he's going to call you to be holy. Next week, he's going to call you to be holy. And he's getting you ready for that. I'll close with this, Psalms 147, 10 through 11. His delight, talking about God, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. In other words, when God looks at you and I, He's first and foremost not saying, boy, that Derek, I'm so proud of him. He's in there studying. He's in there teaching. He's doing all... That's not even what He looks at. What He looks down deep inside of me and He says, is there hope in me? That's what He wants. That's what pleases Him. It's not, it's not, see, his delight is first and foremost not that you have hope in what he can do for you, not what you can do for him. How many people are going through the world trying to earn their way to heaven and it's all about what they can do for God? God says, I look inside a man and I'm looking for hope. I'm looking for hope in my grace. That's what pleases him. Who are we as people? Who are we? Who are you? Are you just getting by? Are you just sliding into church on a Sunday? Are you, are, are you one of those who is just kind of in and out on the fence halfway? Let me tell you, I, I exhort you, go all in. Sell out. Don't just hope partially. Hope fully. Let me tell you, here's the thing. If you hold back hope from grace, you hold back glory from grace. If you hold back any hope, if you're kind of halfway in, and yeah, remember what we said last week, some people view uh, salvation as an insurance policy, like a life insurance policy. I'm going to need it one day, but today, eh, don't really have a hope. I'm glad I got it, but it don't really, it's not my passion today. Let me tell you, it should be your passion today. You should get up, it should be 365, God, all day, every day. It should be, always be about him. Next week, as I said, Peter, in verse 14, 15, and 16, I believe, is going to issue the greatest call that's ever been issued to a, a man and woman, and that is the call to holiness.